Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. Before I get started, I just want to um, honor our pastors, Pastor Mel and Pastor Kim. I know you guys are watching at home um, and on your vacation. I just want to say thank you. We honor you here. Um, this church is thriving because of you. We believe in everything that you're doing. We just want to honor you guys. Um, come on, church. Can we honor our pastors together? I want to say thank you to the Summit staff. They are awesome. Um, we, are, we don't just play around and goof off in offices. We also work, and they are awesome staff to be a part of. We, um, we love doing life with them together. And also, I want to thank the um, congregation here. You guys um, are awesome here, and thank you for accepting um, me and my wife and our two daughters. Um, you guys have been a blessing to us, and thank you for that. And I'm trying to get used to the seven-degree weather right now, so if you see me doing this a lot, I'm still warming up, even though I've been here since 8 o'clock, so um, it's cold. But um, also, I want to thank my wife. She's awesome. She's sitting here in the front, uh, front row. Um, she's definitely my better half. She's awesome. She's my rock, and, you know, she keeps me in line. She keeps me in check, so... If I say something, if I look over, she does something, that's because she's giving me that look. So, um, yeah. So, um, before I get started, um, I just want to just, um, just say thank you again. You know, if it wasn't for God, I would not be here. So, um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. It should be on the screen. Um, and we'll dive right in. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered gathering around the table, around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a, has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he, re, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word, God. Thank you for what you're going to do here, Lord God. We thank you in advance, Lord, for those that are going to get saved, Lord God. Thank you for, the, for, for just being God and your word. Speak through me, Lord. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this in verse 2. It says, when the Pharisees were gathered, they were all talking because Jesus was talking to sinners. It says this in verse 2. It says, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's a good, you know, they were talking amongst each other. And I, and I thought about that for a moment. And I said, this thought came to my mind. How many of us would welcome someone that doesn't look like us, doesn't talk like us, or even dress like us? But Jesus did, and he still does. He did 2,000 years ago, and he's still doing it now. He's still bringing those into the kingdom of heaven. He's still welcoming those who are sinners that doesn't look like us or talk like us. He's still welcoming them with open arms. And to understand 
my story and to, and to understand why I praise the way I praise down here in the front row, um, I'm, I want to take you on a little journey of where I came from. Why I worship the way I worship, why I have a passion for youth and I have a passion for the word of God. You have to understand where I came from. I was born and raised in Patterson, New Jersey in the, in the projects on the 13th floor in a broken home. My mom raised me and my brother. My father was always in and out of prison. See, I knew my father, but I didn't know him. It's a big difference. And when you're growing up in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s, the drug epidemic was heavily, heavy. The crack cocaine was like a plague then. I watched my mom smoke crack. I watched my mom shoot heroin. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment. I watched guys come in and out of our apartments. So what does a young kid do when he doesn't have a father figure? There's drug dealers all around the projects. You look towards them as a father figure, an older brother. There was one particular drug dealer that took me underneath his wing and showed me the ropes. He showed me how to make money, not to get caught. And I remember occasionally he would give me his drugs to put in my pocket to hold for him, his money. I was young. And I remember um, a couple, uh, um, this one incident, this one weekend where the detectives or narcotics would come and raid the projects and, and he would give, give me and, and some other kids his drugs and his money and we would hold them in his pocket and other drug dealers would do the same with the other kids and, and being the kids that we are, we would pull out the money and see who had the biggest stack of money. And I remember this lady she came walking through the projects because we ha I had his drugs and, and the cops um, arrested him. And in, in New Jersey, if you get arrested on a Friday, you don't get out until Monday, so you're down for the weekend. And she came walking through the projects looking for some drugs to buy, and I had some on me. And I made my first crack sale at a young age. It wouldn't be my last. And that entire weekend, I sold his drugs, and, you know, when he came home that Monday and he saw me, I gave him his drugs, I gave him his money, and he looked at me and said, you sold, you sold some, huh? I said, yeah. And he knew that my background, my mom, we struggled. My mom was an addict, you know, and, you know, my mom been in and out of rehab, but we were struggling financially, we were struggling with food, and there were uh, sometimes... Um, we would run our extension cord through from our house to the neighbor's house so we can just have electricity. Or some nights we will be so hungry that we will have bread and we will make sandwiches out of mayonnaise and mustard. That's what I would eat. Till this day, I didn't tell this um, in, the, in the last services, but there's, um, there's a brand of cereal that I won't, I won't eat because it scarred me. And that's Frosted Flakes. I know some of you guys are like, what? I won't eat Frosted Flakes because there were plenty of times where we didn't have milk and I would have to pour that in a bowl and, and eat cereal with water, or we would have roaches and they had to pluck them out the box. He would give us money, he would give me money, almost like an allowance, you know, for doing things for him. He would give me like $20, $30, but during those times in the late 80s, early 90s, giving a kid that much money, you know, was like $100 now. Like I said, my dad was never in, um, in my life, and I began to develop this anger, you know, in school, and 
I didn't really like school. I was always fighting and, and always getting suspended and, you know, always giving problems, to, causing problems for the teachers. It was one, um, one day that the school was going on a field trip to the Bronx Zoo and I wanted to go and they said, you can't go unless a parent or guardian go with you. And my dad finally got out of prison and, you know, he was getting his act together and um, he came along on that trip with me. And my friends, they, they liked it and, you know, they, they hung out with me and my dad and I watched my dad, you know, I got to talk to him and he got to buy me some things and I was still a little leery from him, uh, for him. But I remember after, at the end of the day, I went home and I was a little sad and I was a little crying and my mom called my dad. She said, she said what was wrong? And, I, and um, I said, I miss my dad. She called him, we talked, and um, her, her mom, him and my mom talked, and, and, and um, my dad asked if we can come stay with them in the suburbs of New Jersey. It's called Pompton Lakes, New Jersey. We were the third African-American family there. And I got introduced into organized sports, wrestling, football, basketball, baseball, I did it. And um, this was in 1990 when we lived with them. Um, in 1993, my dad passed away. I watched my dad go from a solid 200 pounds to 100 pounds soaking wet. I didn't know at the time he was dying, he contracted the HIV AIDS disease. Why? Because of the choices he made in life in those 80s and the 70s and 80s. Sharing needles and multiple partners, he contracted that. That was in 1993. I moved back to Patterson, not to stay with my mother on the west side of Patterson and um, where she was from and she was still living in the projects, but we stayed on the east side with my grandmother and the, they called it the suburbs of Patterson, but it was still projects on the other side. And when you grew up on the west side and you moved to another side of town, there was always rivalry, especially with me because I was from the one area of the projects and I was going to a school where the other project, rival projects was going and I was always fighting because they knew I was from the other side. Two years later in 1995, my mother passed away at the age of 15 when I was 15 years old. She died as well of the HIV AIDS disease. I didn't know at the time until later on in life they told me. My mom made choices in her life that, you know, um, she made some bad choices with multiple partners and the needles and it all caught up to her. I went on to go into high school and I began to play football and wrestling was my two favorites, my, was my main sports. I gave up baseball and I, and I, and I was good in both wrestling and, uh, and football. I was being offered scholarships, um, offers to a bunch of schools here in Pennsylvania, but I turned everything down. Why? Because I always seen it on TV that the, the perfect family will take their kids to college and drop them off, unloading their luggage, going up to the dorms and setting it all up and making it look nice and it would, it, it would have been just me. My grandmother raised me, you know, she was a praying woman, praying woman. But later on, life caught up to me. I began to go to community college, but that was like high school all over again. I began to dabble in marijuana and started drinking, started hanging out on a corner in New Jersey, and, start, and then after a while, I started to sell drugs. Started wine. I didn't get involved in gangs, but I, was, I had friends that were associated with Bloods, Crips, and, and Italians. I had some friends that were in part of everything that was organized. 
And I remember one particular moment we were in the park hanging out and we didn't have guns on us, but there was this group of guys that would come, they were called the stick-up kids, and they would rob you. And I remember getting robbed at gunpoint with a shotgun at my head. There was some, um, one incident where they did a drive-by on us where the bullet grazed me in the shoulder. We got into fights, I got stabbed in the side. So to understand where I come from, that's why I praise the way I praise, because God has brought me so far. As I, as I began to sell drugs, I started selling stuff that was harder, that was cocaine. Got into that. And I remember um, when I was selling that and my friends would tell me, Ricky, you don't want to get involved with this. You don't want to try this, stay away from it. It'll bring you down, trust me. See, I thought it was okay because I used to see um, the girls do it, see the guys do it, inside clubs, it, it, it looked normal. Then one day I tried it and I got hooked. Not only did I try that, I also tried ecstasy and the other things that come along with it. One day I was going, I was coming from Washington Heights, New York. Big drug area up there. I was coming home with a lot of drugs and I was gonna go and make money. I was heading to the bar where I also bartended at. I remember going into this 24-hour chicken store that, that these food stores that are open and you can go, it doesn't matter what time it is, you can go and you can grab food and you can, you can leave out. I remember walking in and walking out in the paramedics. See, I thought I was in a car accident because I was already drunk and I was already high. I thought I, was, I thought I hurt somebody really bad. The paramedic said, no, you've been assaulted. Some guys beat you up so bad they left you in the middle of the street in your underwear. I never wore glasses a day in my life. They have, I have a titanium plate underneath my, my right eye right now because my, they, they beat me so bad. They was beating me so bad that the lady that was up in the... Um, up in the building, she saw it and she was looking out the window and she was calling the cops and she ran outside to save, to save me because they had a gun pointed right at my face, ready to pull the trigger. After I got released from the hospital, after I got bandaged up and after they did the surgery, they did something that they shouldn't have done to an addict. They gave me prescriptions for Percocets and, and Oxys. That's something, and, and when you do that to an addict, and you know, you begin to sell it, and you begin to use it and abuse it, and before you know it, you're hooked on that as well. I remember I got to a point where I was so low in life and turned to my back on my family. I was, in my, I was in my apartment, and I had a gun on the table. I loaded it up. I put the gun to my head, and I pulled the trigger, and nothing happened. Laid it back down, went to sleep, woke up the next day. Find, I was trying to look for where was the next party. Couldn't find them, couldn't find my friends or anything. See, I used to have visions of driving my car into a brick wall or driving it over an overpath. I was, I was suicidal. And I remember clear as day, I was driving my car so fast down Broadway in New Jersey it seemed like God was already working because my grandmother was always praying for me and 
he God 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 was hearing her prayers because I was driving my car to the police station and it seemed it felt like God had His hand on all traffic and let me get to that police station. I ran every red light, every stop sign just to get to the police station. God walked, parked my car, walked into the police station. I said, "If you guys don't do anything for me tonight, I'm going to end it." They called the paramedics. They took me to the psychiatric ward in St. Joseph Hospital. I spent the week there. Not only did I detox there, I was also um, seeing counselors, but I was so far gone that I didn't know what I was saying to them. They was getting ready to release me. They was going to release me to a straight and narrow um, 30-day rehab, but my grandmother said, he needs something longer. And when they released me, they also gave me prescription, um, prescription drugs, which was antidepressants, but that was the worst thing that they could never do to give someone because it put me in a dark place. It put me in a hole and I, I, couldn't, I didn't know if I was coming or going. They said, my grandmother said, um, a friend of the family said, let him talk to this pastor that I know. He may have an answer for you. And I was open to it because I was open to hear him because the one person that never turned their back on me, that always prayed for me, I know this was my last shot with her. But she would continue to pray. I turned my back on her. So I, I went and I met with this pastor at this church. And I remember we were sitting down. It almost looked like an intervention that you see on TV, but it wasn't all of that with the, the, the papers they were reading. No, this was real. He asked me how long I was running the streets for, and I told him. And, and um, he said, if you can give your life to the Lord for one year, for one year with no distractions, no TV, no newspaper, none of that stuff. For one year, I guarantee you, your life will never be the same. Right then and there, the Holy Spirit started working right then and there. As I, as I began, as, as they began to talk, I didn't hear a word they were saying. I don't, only thing I remember was just seeing flashes of the clubs, the alcohol, the girls, the party, the drugs, the shore, everything flashing before my eyes. That's when God was speaking to me. I heard it as clear as they said, everything that you know of right now, it's not going to exist anymore. I'm wiping it all out of your life. He said, you're going to go into this program in Brooklyn called Teen Challenge. I was like, wait a minute, Teen Challenge, is this like a, a, a boy's home, a teen boy? I was like, I'm 25 years old. He said, no, that's the name of the program that David Wilkerson started. And me and my wife, we, we, we thank David Wilkerson. If it wasn't for him, we would not be here. He started that program in 1954, and you guys probably, you guys all know who David Wilkerson is, right down the road from here. 1954, when he heard, when he saw those gang members on TV that was going to go on trial for murder and said that they didn't need jail time, they needed Jesus Christ. He stood outside those courtrooms every day with his Bible, skinny man from Western PA in the middle of Brooklyn. with the word of God in his hand because he's seen something in them that the prison systems didn't see. So I walked into Brooklyn Teen Challenge March of 2006. 444 Clinton Ave. The building is still there. The names, his name is still there. Nikki Cruz's name. I actually slept in underneath his bunk where his name was engraved at. I remember walking into 444 Brooklyn 
Teen Challenge. And those guys, when I walked in, it was calling me brother. They wanted to give me hugs. And I was like, come on, why are these guys calling me brother and wanting to hug me and talking about they love me? Welcome home. I was like, my home is in New Jersey, not in Brooklyn. <laughs> but I remember when I walked in there, I took my bags upstairs. I was there probably for about a week, week and a half, week and a half. And I always wanted to leave. I would walk down the stairs with my bags, and they wouldn't stop me because I wasn't mandated. I was there voluntarily. And something would pull me back and say, go back upstairs, drop your bags. Same thing over and over. It was one week, and it was a Friday night. It was a bunch of alumni that came to the, um, to the house. Now, this house can house 33 men. So it's 33 different attitudes, 33 different personalities in this house. So we're all in this, bunched up in this chapel area in Brooklyn, 416 Clinton Ave. We're all in this house, and they started worshiping the Lord. They, they were singing this song, Lord, I give you my heart. Lord, I give you my heart. And right then and there, I see, I've been, I've been battling with guns and knives and been in fights, and I never cried for anything. But when they started to sing that song, the Holy Spirit started, something happened to me that changed my life forever. God reached down and he grabbed my heart, but he didn't just touch it. He grabbed it and he squeezed it, and I began to weep. That's when the breaking process started to happen. He started to break me right then and there, and I began to weep in front of these men. In front of these men, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't, I didn't feel embarrassed. They wasn't, they wasn't, it wasn't no awkward. They, they looked at me and they, they were embracing me. And the counselor pulled me out and pulled me into the office. And he said, Ricky, what you experienced was God. He asked me, was I ready to surrender my life over to Christ? And I said, yes. So in March of 2006, I gave my life over to Christ. In Brooklyn Teen Challenge. Praise God for that. Now, after I, I, in, in Brooklyn, there's two phases to the program. You go four months in Brooklyn, then you, the your rest of your stay is on the farm. And I was like, where are we going? <laughs> so driving up there, you started smelling the cow manure and everything. And, you know, and, and I remember going on, and it's called God's Mountain. It's in Raresburg. And I remember getting in trouble a couple of times and, and one of my discipline areas was to go and chicken pick. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> You're going to chicken picking. I was like, okay. It's the worst smelling ever. <laughs> I took them clothes and I burned them. I didn't, you got to have a special calling to be a farmer. But I give you guys all, you guys are awesome. But I graduated in March of 2007. This past March marked 10 years that I've been clean. Praise God. After I graduated Teen Challenge, that's where God placed a call in my life. He said, who's going to reach these teenagers that has the same story you have, that's growing up with grandmas who lost their parents, who's battling addiction? He said, you're going to go. And I want you to preach the word to the teenagers, college students. And I accepted that. And I went to Central Bible College where I met my beautiful wife. And you want to hear something crazy? She was also a graduate of Teen Challenge as well in Long Island. She has a powerful testimony as well. See, we didn't know each other while we were in Teen Challenge. We met at Bible College. 
We have a beautiful family now. All why? Because of, in 1954, a man named David Wilkerson took a leap of faith. He heard the call of God in his life. See, that's why I praise the way I praise. That's why I worship the way I worship, because my past, I, <laughs> I, I can't go back to that. That's why I worship God every chance that I get. I read the word of God every day. That's why my wife worships the way she worships. Why? Because God has brought us so far. He's brought us so far, and he's doing it now, and he's, he's going to do it. For, he's, he did it 2,000 years ago, and he's doing it now today. So there's hope in everyone. In verse 4, it says this, Suppose if one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, doesn't he leave the, the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That question hits home with me. I was gone. I turned my back on my family, on the person I love, my grandmother. She prayed, listen, if it wasn't for her that praying for me every day, I would not be here. I would not have been here. She never gave up. Now, for some of us in here, you probably have family members that are battling. You may have friends that are battling. Don't stop praying for them. Don't give up. You never know when God is going to reach down and touch them. Their, their story is probably not as dramatic as mine or is not life-changing. But listen, don't stop praying for them. God is going to do something for them right now. If you continue to pray and pray and pray and pray, you probably don't see it happening now, but God is working it out in the spiritual realm. Trust me, he is. He's working it out. Listen, even as Christians, we can focus on groups we associate with. And the, one, and the one that wanders off, we forget to look for him or her. And that goes with our family. We forget sometimes. When we're in our circles or when we're with our family, we forget. We lose track. Yes, we get busy in life, but guess what? God is still out there. He still hears our prayers. He hears your cries. Listen, the Bible says, call to me and I will, call to me and I will um, find you in in." And show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. Call to me and I will and I, and I hear you in Jeremiah 33. Call to me and I will show you great and unsearchable things you do not know. He's hearing you. He's hearing your cries. Continue to pray for them. Listen, God isn't just interested in his followers. He's also interested in the ones that wander. He's also interested in the one that's out there. The Bible clearly says this in Hebrew 13, 5. It says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you, never, neither will I forsake you. See, sometimes I tell our students this. You hear that verse, you hear, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, sometimes we, take, we, we, we have a tendency to leave God on the table and we do this. We start wandering away from him. And we wonder why we can't feel him in the worship service. We wonder why we, he's not answering our prayers. We wonder why he's not speaking to us on a, on, on a situation that we're struggling with. Why? Because we left him on the shelf. We think that we can do it on our own. Well, let me tell you something, everyone in here. We don't have that kind of power to do it on our own. We don't. You probably, you probably will last for a couple days, but then you know what? You start drifting even more. Before you know it, you become numb. You can't feel God, you can't hear him. Our God is awesome. 
If he can save me, he can save my wife, he can save that one that you've been praying for, he can save that one that you've been hoping for, the one that needs to be here. He can do it for you guys as well. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, God is always pursuing the one that wanders. God pursues all of us. He's pursuing us. Even in our sin, he is still pursuing. Even while we're in our sin, isn't that that crazy? Even while we're sinning, he's still pursuing us. We have a God that will never leave us nor forsake us. He's pursuing us. Listen, it doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what you did last week. It doesn't matter what you did a month ago. He's still pursuing you. It doesn't matter. Our God is great. He is great, church. He's still pursuing. So don't stop praying. Don't stop seeking God. Go after him with all your heart. And I'm going to be closing down and worship team. You guys can come on up. In verse 5 and 7, it says this, 5 through 7, it says, And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, meaning the sheep, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. There's a story that I read. It was a shepherd. And he would herd his sheep day in, day out. But there was this one particular sheep that would always just wander off. Instead of him falling in line, following the other sheep in line like he's supposed to, the sheep would just wander right off. And one day this farmer, he, um, the farmer, this shepherd, he he got the sheep, and he intentionally broke the sheep's leg. I know you guys are like, wow, that's cruel. He picked the sheep up, put it on his shoulders, and he walked with it home. Laid the sheep down, and he would bandage the sheep up, put a cast on it. He would tend to it. He would, he would care for it. He would feed it, give it water. He would love them. And then when it was time to go out and herd the sheep, he would pick that sheep up and he would walk with it. And that sheep will see the other sheep following and he see the love that his master has for him. He, he did that day in and day out until that sheep was healed. And when that, when that sheep was healed, he put that sheep down and the sheep fell in line. He followed the master. It's just like I walk with Christ. When God breaks us, he's there to comfort us, right? When you're at that low point, he's there to comfort you, to wrap you in your arms. He should, whenever, whenever, whenever you're there crying, he's there to wipe every tear away. Yes, there are going to be times where you're going to you're going to wander straight, but you know what? The Lord is going to be there. like, you know what? Uh-uh. Come back this way. Follow. Get in line. And we all have that tendency to, to, to follow the crowd. But you know what? God is saying, you know what? Stay in line and follow me. Follow me. 
follow me. See, I don't know what everyone in here is struggling. I don't know if you have an addiction problem. If you know anybody that has an addiction problem. But let me tell you something. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop praying for yourself. Our God is able to heal. He's able to comfort. Because our God is great and mighty to be praised. With every head bowed and every eye closed, no one looking around. Some of us, you probably came into this service or you, you've been coming to the summit and you've been shrouding the fence about, you know, I want to surrender my life over to Christ, but I'll wait. I'll wait. I think I could do it on my own. Someone, someone in here, you may be new. It's your first time coming and God's been tugging at your heart. Some of us, God's tugging at your heart right now. I tell our students this every Wednesday, to accept Christ is very easy. I call it the ABCs of salvation. You accept, you believe, and you confess Jesus Christ as Lord. It's that easy. And heaven will be rejoicing the one that came home. It's that easy. I'm gonna give you that opportunity right now. Search your hearts right now. If you feel a tug, you've been straddling that fence, you've been coming here, on the count of three, slip up your hands. One, the tug is real on your heart. You've been coming here and you've been, you've been debating whether or not if you should raise your hand when the salvation call happens. Two, the tug is real. And God can save you. Three, if that's you, slip up your hands. I see that hand, sir. More seconds. Let's place our hands over our heart. Let's pray this prayer with me out loud. Say, Dear Jesus, I accept you into my life. I believe that you died and rose again. I confess all my sins unto you. From this day forth, I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give God a praise? Now, if you said that prayer, I want you guys to text this number, um, Salvation, to 555-888, and um, we'll do a follow-up with you. Someone from the church will follow up with you. Um, if you said that prayer online, just text the number 555-888 to um, Salvation, and like I said, someone will follow up with you. Stand to your feet across this room. We're going to go into a time in worship, but before we do go into worship, we're going to have prayer partners on, on both sides of the room. And I challenge you this. Step out of, step out of your seats. And if you need prayer, the prayer partners are on both sides. If you know you know somebody that's been struggling, let someone agree with you and you guys start praying together for that one. It doesn't matter, like I said, it doesn't matter what you did last night doesn't matter what you did last week. God is still pursuing us. God is still pursuing us. And it doesn't matter if you're, if you're struggling with addiction. It doesn't matter what kind of addiction. If it's pornography. If it's loneliness. Whatever you're struggling with, God is able to heal you. 
Let me tell you something. God didn't call us to be uncomfortable. He called God, God, God didn't call us to be comfortable. He called us to be uncomfortable. He didn't call us to be comfortable, y'all. So my challenge is to step out of your seats. Let our prayer partners pray with you. Let them agree with you. Because if God could change me, change my wife, he can change the circumstances that you guys are going through. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together.